Zeitgeist Turkey, coming to you weekly from Istanbul. Your smart guide to state of Turkey. Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of Zeitgeist Turkey, coming to you from Istanbul. This is your co-host Can Selçuk'i. And this is Cansu Çamlıbek. So, Cansu, let's get into it. Uh, first, uh, a big thank you to all the listeners of our first episode. We really uh, felt welcomed uh, with our comeback. Uh, now, let me go dive into what's on our agenda. Today, we're going to talk about foreign policy, as can be seen from the name of the episode. The topic is the F-word, namely the F-16s. Cansu, please let us know what happened in the U.S., why that's relevant and is it a victory for turkey is it a loss for biden what's happening you know try you know get us out of the rather shallow rhetoric in turkey and give us a big picture here well john first we have to uh, remind our audience uh, of what happened um, three four days ago um So the U.S. Congress uh, House of Representatives voted an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act. If um, anyone is not familiar with the word NDAA, uh, this is basically the defense budget of the United States. And every year, um, uh, the House and the Senate um, uh, vote this in order this budget to be uh, authorized and also be available for the use of the US administration. So this is a key document every year. And uh, you might remember that in the previous years, in 2019 and 20, um, Turkey's uh, purchase of the S-400s, Russian S-400s, and the sanctions were introduced in the NDAAs. This year, Uh, what was voted uh, on Friday, last Friday, was an amendment uh, to this document. 244 of the has, uh, members of the House uh, voted yes to this amendment. And this amendment is apparently uh, requires the U.S. administration to limit uh, the sale of the uh, F-16 to Turkey. And the reason, the basic reason given in this amendment is a probable violation of Greek airspace. So if you look at the wording in this document, it's quite vague and it is not that powerful, which means that this cannot really be regarded as a victory for anyone. But Jansu, let me interrupt you here. And, you know, uh, for a foreign policy uh, ignorant like myself, let's let's you know, iron out this. <laughs> But that is the case, though. So from a military perspective, we have some idea uh, about the repercussions of Turkey not getting F-16s, right? Our own John Casapolo at Adam writes intensively on this, you know, uh, fifth generation fighter jets, the, the, you know, Turkey's inability to be part of F-35 uh, system and to acquire them as well. So that part, we have an idea. But from a diplomatic perspective, when you say a vague language, That means it could it could go either way in the near future, right? For either uh, the benefit of uh, Turkey or against Turkey. So, where does that? How do you think that vagueness is going to play out uh, in the coming uh, months, um, particularly before the uh, midterm elections in the U.S.? Or is that the timeline? 
Well, John, uh, the problem here is not so much uh, the house itself. Um, the problem is more the Senate because um, you would, although you're calling yourself an ignorant, you'll probably know the name Bob Menendez, who is mm -hmm. like, um, you know, one of the fierce um, opposition who is who, who has been uh, campaigning the fierce opposition against Erdogan's policies in DC for a long time. And of course, uh, he has been uh, a key figure in terms of um, pursuing the agenda of uh, the uh, the Armenian and the Greek lobbies uh, in DC. So he is important and he's now uh, the head of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. And he has made it absolutely clear that he's against the sale of the F-16s. So what um, Biden has to do is that apparently he has to convince Bob Menendez about this. And Bob Menendez is an important figure himself, but of course he also uh, is a symbol of all the opposition to Erdogan. And in doing so, if you look at uh, the amendment, the document that was approved at the House last week, uh, so it's asking the administration uh, to provide a reason of national security and national interest. In the, in the US politics, the presidents can actually uh, bypass uh, the Congress veto uh, by signing decrees. This has happened in the, in the past, uh, and you might remember that President Trump, for instance, opted for this option uh, in terms of sales to Saudi Arabia, for instance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because there was uh, this resistance from the Congress after the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. So mm -hmm. if it comes to that, if Menendez and his followers are adamant in terms of uh, blocking this sale, then Biden administration can actually go down that road. So mm -hmm. that's a possibility. But in that case, they will be asking the Turkish government and they will be asking uh, President Erdogan, in my view, um, to halt any plans uh, of an incursion to Syria. So this is all bargaining, you know, Jan. Dana Stroll, and she is the uh, one of the top officials uh, at the Pentagon in terms of defining um, uh, the foreign policy, the Middle East uh, policy of Biden administration. And she said that the US opposes this incursion, any possible incursion, because this might actually jeopardy uh, the SDF prisons. So Dana Stroll was saying in her statement uh, that uh, US opposes this incursion uh, because of uh, the prisons in the Northeast that are controlled by SDF and ISIS detainees are kept in those prisons. If the security of those prisons cannot be provided, then there might be, you know, ISIS members can actually flee and this might destabilize uh, the security situation in Syria. This is the reason that is given uh, by the US officials. But we know for a fact that it's not just the SDF prisons or the ISIS detainees. Uh, basically, this is the piece of land that is uh, under the control of SDF, uh, which sits on the back backbone of YP. Let me bring it home a little uh, before I come to that. Uh, you know, uh, how the, you know, electorate sentiment is towards uh, the West or the US, uh, particularly after the failed coup attempt of uh, 2016. Let me ask you this, this, 
the the part that of this amendment that obviously is related to uh, Turkey Greece uh, relations do you think this will actually calm down the rhetoric on both sides on the Greek side and and on the Turkey side against one another because you know both leaders are uh, looking into uh, elections in the next year and they both need to sort of uh, ramp up some anger uh, and and fear in their own society to sort of uh you know gather more points do you think this will actually calm things down uh between uh, turkey and turkish and greek leaders or uh, is it likely to uh continue uh this this aggression at least in the in the speeches given well i mean this is not going to calm down anything i mean in terms okay. of like the domestic uh, the domestic narratives inside turkey and greece i don't think that's going to change a lot uh but apparently eu and the us um in the last year they have managed to you know put this problem in the uh, east met uh, in the freezer So uh, this document is not changing a lot in my view. But of course, the Greek lobby is stronger than the Turkish lobby in DC, and they will mm-hmm. keep on uh, bringing this issue on, uh, on the agenda for the months to come. But I don't think this is going to change um, a lot in terms of like how um, the, the national politics are attacking each other. So, you know, going back to you know, YPG being a, uh, a very important, actually, uh, element of, of uh, you know, distrust between uh, Turkey and U.S., particularly, uh, you know, Turkish distrust uh, towards the U.S. Since the failed coup attempt and the change rhetoric of the Turkish government and the new alliance uh, in the country, anti-West sentiment has been growing very fast, very rapidly. And, you know, I would argue, Jansu, that for good reasons as well. I mean, The support to YPG uh, from the U.S., uh, you know, the harboring of Fethullah Gulen, uh, you know, issues regarding S-400s uh, and F-35s, you know, all these uh, issues. Also, you know, a lot of uh, double play by uh, some EU uh, member countries as well, EU partners as well. You know, uh, Turkish society has a lot to rightfully feel uh, defeated uh, by by Western partners, and I'm using this in quotation marks now. The government not only developed its uh, rhetoric to feed from this uh, growing distrust among society, but also used this perfect opportunity to polarize uh, the society on, on foreign policy as well. You know, you're either with them, the imperialists, the YPG supporters, the Gulenists, the Illuminati, and whatnot, you know, jokingly, obviously, and or Or, or you're with your country. And what happened then is that, you know, the society is really, every time a foreign policy issue comes up, uh, the society is really immensely divided, right? Everything is either a great victory for the country and for Erdogan's, uh, Erdogan's uh, government or, or a great loss, depending on which side mm-hmm. of the camp you are. I mean, we saw this happen in, Uh, over the NATO debacle, uh, over the you know uh, acceptance of Finland and and Sweden, you know where some part of the society and the opposition said, "Oh, this is a huge loss. What an embarrassing moment for Erdogan and his government." Whereas you know the government media and the government officials said, "Oh, you know what a historical win for Turkey. Now finally they accept you know our weight uh, on the table." Mm-hmm. And again, over the F-16 uh, amendment that you've been uh, explaining to us since the beginning. I feel the same, uh, you know, same feeling 
uh, same feeling, same camps being formed. And now this is the general feeling. But also there's a part of the society where, you know, we see our, in our polling as well uh, that, you know, they tie everything that's happening in Turkey to the fact whether if the U.S. allows something to happen or does not allow something to happen uh, in Turkey. And it's always almost a deterministic model where nothing Turkey does really matters. It's uh, whether if, you know, U.S. and these imperial powers let us uh, do things or not. Yes, the Russian invasion of Ukraine did create Turkey, give Turkey with some room to maneuver, particularly Erdogan government, some room to maneuver, uh, to assume a new role and maybe discuss some issues with uh, its Western partners. But it's not a, you know, it's not a break or uh, make it moment like it's being portrayed or like it's being uh, feared by a government uh, opposition, uh, opposing uh, electorate. So can you walk us through a bit through that gray area that actually exists, but we don't talk about anymore? Well, gray areas always exist, John. Uh, this was also uh, true for uh, the, the membership of Sweden and Finland um, to the NATO. And it wasn't make or break. It was just a matter of negotiation. And diplomacy is about negotiation. And what happened, and you described it perfectly, uh, what happened in Turkey is rather um, uh, very conspiracy-oriented um, uh, point of view. Obviously, we have, we have been through a lot in the last decade. I mean, in terms of the terror attacks and also what happened uh, six years ago uh, on July 15th, uh, whether it was a coup, a coup attempt, uh, who was organizing it. You would re recall the rhetoric at the time of Erdogan's government that this was apparently organized by NATO and the United States. This was pumped into the society. And of course, the public opinion has been poisoned uh, the, by these narratives, not only uh, coming from the government, but also the opposition uh, parties are not helping at all. The Turkish public opinion uh, is a little, uh, I, I find it very um, sad for us uh, to be trapped in those eco chambers of either the governing side or the opposition side, because there's always, there are always gray areas. And thank God there are gray areas because otherwise uh, every country would be fighting one another if there was no compromise. Diplomacy is for that. What is going to be the favor from, from Erdogan's side? And at this point, well, as for hundreds, we are not talking about them anymore. Yes, they are on Turkish soil, but they are not being used. And it's, seems like there is this silent agreement between the two sides that this is not going to be a public issue, but Turkey is not going to use them. And especially at this point, when there is this um, NATO resistance against or NATO unity against Russian invasion in Ukraine, the Turkey would not be opting for that option uh, because Turkey decided uh, no matter the differences are, even if Turkey is not uh, applying sanctions, to Russia, uh, Turkey has decided that Turkey is going to be on the NATO side of history. We talked a lot about the, the polarization and the irrational uh, public debate on foreign policy. However, let me perhaps, you know, give you some numbers and end the post podcast on a more optimistic note as to the perception of the 
population vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, foreign policy, because our numbers actually tells us that uh, 60 million uh, large electorate of Turkey is much more rational than the rather shallow discussion uh, that's taking place uh, on, on, you know, uh, TV uh, shows, uh, debate shows uh, at night. So uh, one week after uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 24th, we did a poll in Turkey and we said, you know, what should the, you know, Turkey's position be vis-a-vis -vis this uh, invasion? And, um, you know, the, the, the response of the public was very rational. Whereas they said, you know, let's keep selling them Bayraktar uh, drones. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, let's keep sending them uh, humanitarian uh, support. But, you know, let's not join the economic sanctions of the West. And, you know, let's not donate uh, arms to them. So, you know, I find this a very uh, pragmatic uh, approach, a very rational approach by the uh, Turkish society. On that similar note, we did two rounds of surveys, uh, both in 2001, first in 2018, Johnson, and the other one in uh, 2021, whereby we tried to measure uh, Turkish uh, society's perception of the multilateral international system. You know, uh, supranational organizations multil towards multilateral uh, organizations. And there, what we come across is that, whereas the anti-West sentiment is still very much there, the public has become much more pro-EU uh, and pro-West when it comes to its, you know, uh, mid-long-term uh, development uh, needs or, or financial needs. So I think, and the reason why I'm saying that, you know, this is a much more hopeful uh, situation than the one we described, because this tells me that, you know, rational uh, foreign policy actually does resonate uh, with, the, uh, with the society, with the electorate. So, uh, you know, in the, in the near future, I think uh, this government or a new government, uh, should they choose to go that way, uh, will be actually uh, surprised to find a very um, rational uh, electorate when it comes to uh, foreign policy. And obviously, that's what, uh, you, know, the, you know, politicians follow public opinion very closely and their policy choices are obviously uh, very much uh, curated uh, by what the public uh, thinks or, or supports. All the foreigners are asking me this. And of course, I'm trying to, like personally, trying to find out the answer. Um, we discussed about this uh, President Erdogan, I mean, judging by the numbers today, judging by the equation today, uh, it, it will be really tough for him to win next year's election. So everybody sure. thinks that he might, I mean, what, what kind of rabbit he's going to pull from his hat um, next year. And everybody thinks that he might actually uh, opt for um, a nationalistic cause like an incursion, an invasion into Syria or, or somewhere else or um, some kind of tension in the East Met. It looks like he is apparently um, focusing on Syria at the moment, an operation uh, into Syria. Do you think this, is, this would change the dynamics uh, for him dramatically? If there is an incursion, if there is an invasion, I mean, incursion, invasion, these concepts are also problematic, but let's say that there is an operation into Syria 
if, you know, if he gets a green light. I mean, it's unlikely that he is going to get a green light from the US, but uh, whatever um, President Putin is going to say will be vital in terms of his de- decision in, in, in going into Syria. And let, let's remind the audience that tomorrow there is an important meeting in Tehran. President Erdogan is going there. Uh, Russian President Putin is going there. This is going to be a trilateral meeting uh, in the Astana format, uh, and they're mm-hmm. going to be discussing Syria. So uh, this week is important probably is going to be important in terms of Erdogan's um, plans and decisions in the weeks to come. So do you think uh, an operation, a Turkish operation into, uh, into Syria, a new one, will change the dynamics for Turkey's next election? No. And, you know, very simply no, because these incursions into northern Syria, northern Iraq are, you know, Yes, obviously, these are the choices of the government, but these have, I find, not that much to do with the government. I mean, it's a, na- it's a matter of national security for Turkey. And I would argue that uh, regardless of who's in power right now, these uh, you know, incursions would have to be made given the current state of things. One thing that I would caution, however, is you know, if this incursion, if this military operations were to have political outcomes, then that could be something to consider. What do I mean by political outcomes? Say, for example, John, so as a result of a, a number of uh, cross-border operations into northern Syria, Turkey is able to, you know, uh, reallocate uh, some of the Syrian refugees uh, to, to those lands. Now, that would be different, but that would be a political outcome uh, of that military operation. So, what I'm trying to say is that a military operation on its own, just you know, by the merit of its you know of its own, would not be enough to sway uh, the public opinion. It would only be, you know, uh, a, a effective if that were to produce the kind of uh, political outcome that I just uh, described. Just like you know, uh, negotiating with NATO. Just like. Uh, you know, finding a new position uh, of of mediation in the uh, Russian-Ukrainian uh, war. I mean, these things are welcomed uh, by Erdogan's government, Erdogan's electorate, uh, and by the general uh, electorate, uh, I would say, as well. But these need to have palpable, tangible results uh, domestically. Turkey reaching a agreement with NATO or finding a new position itself for itself uh, in the Russian-Ukrainian uh, war, if that were to, for example, improve financing, external financing conditions for Turkey, now that would mean something. But just the fact that, you know, uh, President Erdogan now meets more regularly with some of the uh, world leaders that, you know, he had more time, harder time meeting in the past, just because now he can meet them doesn't really sway the public opinion. And the same goes for a uh, incursion into uh, northern Syria. It has to have political results. And from where I'm standing, a result of the magnitude that I described seems rather difficult at this point in time. Right, John. We have to wrap up for today. Uh, Let's do that. Uh, but, but a small note, final note. It's very ironic, in my view, that um, there is this anti-US 
sentiments across the board in Turkish public opinion, but everybody wants to end up in the US uh, and everybody wants to send their kids uh, to US for education. Maybe this is, if you haven't done yet, this could be an interesting uh, opinion poll that you might do in, <laughs> in the future. Obviously, this is a uh, love and hate uh, relationship. Speaking of love and hate, let me say on the love side and remind our audience that if you do indeed love us, you can click on the link uh, below uh, this podcast and uh, support us by subscribing to the monthly Turkey Raporu Opinion Poll reporting. Jansu, thank you very much. I think this was a very nice episode and see you next week. Until then, stay safe everyone and uh, talk to you again next week. Goodbye, everyone.